I'm going to be in Romans 4. I'm reading a book. You all notice that whenever I read a book, you hear about it the next week? Sorry about that. The name of the book is In the Shadow of the Machine by Jeremy Nadler. We are computer society. Everybody has a computer now, and you all are looking at your little computer in your hand, and you've got computers in your house and so forth. And what the book is, it is an exploration of how humanity got to the point where it could make computers. And it starts back in ancient Egypt, 5,000 years ago. What it is, is an exploration of logic and the development of logic and the development of the understanding of electricity. Because those are the two things that are necessary for a computer to work, logic and electricity. In the first three chapters, he deals with ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. It's kind of interesting because those societies didn't regard logic as a path to understanding or wisdom. They regarded logic as something that was useful for craftsmen. You all know that they built pyramids and towers and all that kind of stuff, which takes a lot of logic. But that was tradespeople or craftspeople's stuff. Religion didn't have anything to do with that. What they instead did is they would personify all of the phenomenon of nature and they would understand those things as best they could through direct experience and emotion and logic was not really part of it. So for example, how many of you recognize that the Incas never invented the wheel? They had a tremendous empire. They were building pyramids and all that kind of stuff, but they never came up with a wheel. The Egyptians didn't either. The Egyptians didn't invent the wheel until about 1600 BC. Egyptian civilization goes back to 2750 BC. So there's a thousand years where Egyptian civilization is building pyramids and doing all sorts of stuff and they never used the wheel. You've all seen the pictures of irrigation in biblical times where you've got this uh, lever on a pole and, and some guy is standing there with his foot and he's swinging it around and dipping it into the river and swinging it around and dumping it. You know what I'm talking about? That was not used in Egypt for a couple of thousand years. What they mostly did is they had jugs and they would get down in the river and they would fill their jugs and put their jug about their shoulder and walk up and pour water. And the reason for that was they didn't want a separation between the river, which was a god, and themselves through a mechanical thing. So getting down in there, filling up your jug, carrying the water out and pouring it out, that was a spiritual kind of an activity. Put a machine in there, even a simple machine, and it distances you from the gods. One of the other things he says is formal logic was invented by the Greeks in about 800 BC. So if you look at the development of logic by the Greeks, they are as far away from the Egyptians in time as they are from us. If you look at the beginnings of Egyptian and Mesopotamian civilization to 800, that time span is as far from the Greeks as the Greeks are from us. A long time. So what is the point of all this? There is a point, I'm assuring you. What kind of an argument is Paul making in Romans? 
He's making a logical argument. He's going through a series of propositions, you know, says, well, all right, Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Therefore, circumcision has nothing to do with justification. Therefore, you Gentiles who are not circumcised, you can be saved too because Abraham was saved the same way you are. And God is a God of logic and consistence and order. That logic would have been completely foreign to an Egyptian or a Mesopotamian. You don't talk about the gods that way. That way of thinking has no relationship to our relationship with any of the gods. It it just would have been completely foreign to them. One of the things that this book says, and it's just a single sentence, because his emphasis is on the development of logic and electricity, and that flows through Greece and then on into Europe and so forth. And he says just sort of, an oh, by the way, as we're looking at these Mesopotamian and Egyptian civilizations, Israel was different. And that's all he says. It just sort of goes by, Israel is different. So the question is, why is Israel different? And why did God choose Abraham? You read the story, and Abraham just sort of plop. He's right there. He's the son of Terah. And they were in Ur, and they moved to Haran, and then from Haran to Canaan. But why Abraham? What is it about this guy that all of a sudden he becomes a central figure in the Bible? Understand that the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians also had faith. In other words, it was not faith per se, it's what is your faith in? That's the big difference. And there's all sorts of rabbinic stories in the Talmud and so forth about Abraham before he shows up in the Bible. These are not scriptural. They are rabbinic. This is not scripture. But one of the stories is Terah was a maker of idols in Mesopotamia. And Abraham went one day and he smashed all of his father's idols. And his father came home and said, what did you just do to all my idols? One of them knocked the other one over. And Terah said, oh, that's stupid. And Abraham said, yeah, that's stupid. They can't do that. That's a rabbinic story, not scripture. But the point about Jehovah is he presents himself as being understandable and being consistent, which is fundamentally different from all of the gods in that region at the same time. Because the characteristic of pagan gods is... They are not to be understood by logic. They are not to be studied by logic as we study the word of Jehovah and the word of God. They are not to be approached that way. Jehovah is different. He is a God that tells us that he is understandable, that he is consistent, and that human faculties, as best our limited bandwidth can accommodate, can understand this God. That was not the case with the river Nile, which was a god, the sun, which was a god, the wind, which was a god, all of these things that were gods, quote-unquote, in the ancient world were not understandable in the same way that our God presents himself. And so the reason Abraham is chosen is he's the guy that understands at some level that God is a God that can be approached and understood and can be trusted. He can be trusted 
because he is consistent. He is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And that's the argument that Paul is making in Romans 4. What he's saying is, this God that I worship is consistent. He's understandable. You can read what he did in ancient times and you can have faith and belief that he will do the same for you. Everybody understand why Abraham? Because it's important. Because Jehovah presents himself as God who is fundamentally different from all of the gods in that region and your relationship to him is fundamentally different from the relationship of the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians or the Greeks or the Romans or any of those people to what they worshipped. And fundamental to the worship of Jehovah is no symbols. We don't have all these symbols that the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks and the Mesopotamians had as representations of their God. Because our God speaks to us, we listen to him, we talk to him, and he talks back to us, and it isn't necessary to have intermediary symbols between us and him. Hence, no idols. Because that's what an idol is, is an intermediate symbol between you and something. God forbids that. He says, I want a relationship directly with you, I don't want symbols in between us. Hence, the rabbinic story of Abraham destroying the symbols between the Mesopotamian culture and the people. One of the things that happens with the modern church is people don't change. We're pretty much the same as we were 5,000 years ago. We like to relate to God through symbols. So you'll find that what happens in Christianity is... As pagans come into the religion, they don't leave their paganism at the doorstep. I mean, I really need this thing to focus my worship. And I mean, there's all sorts of excuses for it, but Christianity brings symbols in in much the same way that those older religions did. And one of the things about this particular chunk of Romans, and Paul in general, is it is presented as an argument against Torah. It is not. One of the things that Paul says in Romans 3, and I'll pick it up at 328, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, works of the law is a technical rabbinic term, and I'm not going to go into that right now. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, this God is consistent. If he did it for one, he will do it for you. There isn't anything special about Abraham that he gets justified one way and you have to do something else. No. The way God does it for Abraham and it's recorded, he will do for you. And then verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And what Paul is saying is that justification by faith is part of the Torah. It is a part of the law. So the fact that justification by faith seems to much of modern churchianity as something new and different and different from the old. Paul says, no, no, nonsense, nonsense. The fact that 
Abraham was justified that way, and you can be justified by that same way, doesn't in any way negate the law. It's part of the law. And if the law is done away with, then that would be done away with also. So if you do away with the law, then justification by faith is no longer possible because that itself is part of the law. Understand that these arguments that Paul is making and I am speaking to you would be completely foreign to an ancient Egyptian or a Mesopotamian. They didn't think of God that way at all. So there has been a process of logical understanding and development that has led to the point where we can relate to our God the way Paul says we should relate to him. And that starts back with Abraham and the realization that God is consistent. So what does all this mean to you? First off, it means the law is not done away with, and you should study it. It also means that you are responsible for what you know or what you should know. And Paul says specifically in Romans 4.15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And he'll go on to develop that in chapter 5, talking about Adam. So what Paul is saying there is, if you don't know the law, you are not held responsible for violating the law. You know the law. You're responsible. The fact that you know the law, you know scripture, you have been taught and you have studied these things makes you responsible. Now, notice that I said what you know or what you should know. Because you go back to Noah and there are some things that were given to humanity after the flood that God holds everybody responsible for. Establishing justice, not murdering, those kinds of things. So, yes, they are part of the Torah, but they are also part of the heritage of the entirety of humanity. And everybody's responsible for those. You should know those, whether you do or not. And that's why I say what you know and what you should know. And Yeshua, by the way, says the same thing. And I will read that to you in Luke. I'm in Luke chapter 12. This is the servants who are in charge in the absence of the master. And what he's talking about is the behavior of servants when master is gone and who's responsible for what. I'm not going to read it all, but if you go down to verse 1247, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So what Yeshua is saying is the same thing that Paul is saying, which is very comforting, which is to say you're responsible for what you know. And what I'm saying to you is you guys know a lot. You're responsible for a lot. And if you go through life saying, I'm justified by faith. Grace covers it. We're okay. I'm suggesting you're making a fundamental error. Because what both Paul and Yeshua say is, I expect you to be doing what I want you to be doing while I'm gone. And if I come back and I find out that you haven't been doing what I left you here to do, I'm going to be upset. Doesn't mean you're going to hell. Doesn't mean that you're frying forever. It simply means that when Yeshua comes back, he's going to be upset with you. 
Personally, I would just as soon not have that happen when he comes back. I would not want him to look at me and say, you were beating the other servants, you were abusing them, you were getting drunk, and all those kinds of things that are talked about here in Luke. I don't want him to say that about me. And I will gently suggest that you don't want him to say that about you either. Torah has not been done away with. You're responsible for it. Go out and do so. Et ta chamon